I'm Holiday. I'm Tarrant. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Over there. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. Sicily. 1922. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. I am, as always, your host, the great white snark, Scotty J, and joining me on our trip to the land of the mentally, the criminal, the, the whatever, the, the criminally insane, I knew I would get it, is the lovely and beautiful Monica. Hi. Okay. As you remember, we started covering Jim Jones last time. Uh, we left but off. I actually with... wanted to update, like, sorry, yeah. should have discussed this before, but update with, we we're talking about Uvalde. Oh, I said yeah. 19. It was actually 21. Oh. It was the 19 students, and I think we didn't have all the information yet when we were recording right. before. But Right, know, but so. I mean, um, I mean, still, still a tragic. I will. Um, yeah, I just did. You know, I need to, like, you know, maybe want to get it. I know the correct. other day. I know the other day when I was in Barnes and Noble, I saw a book on Sandy Hook that I wanted to pick up. I have that. Oh, you do? Nice. Yeah, it talks more about. God, I hit, like feel part It's talking about more how they're like, oh, it's a false flag. Okay. Yeah. About, like, I mean, they're not, she, the author's not saying it's a false flag. They're talking about how it turned into people like talking, right. oh, false flag, all that. And yeah, uh, that research. But I also have Columbine. And that talks that more up. about the actual. That one's really good. Right. Uh, but, um, we got to thank Alex Jones for telling us that, you know, all this was fake. And then he got his ass sued. Yeah, so it's like about all that stuff too, which I mean, so, obviously, is still interesting, but that's right. Yeah. I mean, if anyone out there sees Alex Jones on the side of the road, you know, because it is he's running over. <laughs> right. Well, you know, in all your major, even in my area, you know, we, it, it's summer, it's begging season. People are out there with their signs saying, please help. Uh, if you see Alex Jones out there, please gun the engine and um, take him out. Okay, as I was saying, just like the tur- just like the turtle on the street no, across from us. No, man, you don't kill turtles. I know. Well, like it was. I'm sure. I hope it was like an accident. But I mean, just because it got squished. Oh but, yeah. I I was stopped. I stopped for them. I stopped for them last week. You know, ran across the street. You know, just make, get them where they're going. You James know, I- drove like he was riding home from biking him from the park and he had one in his hand and holding the bike handle on the other one. I was like, like, I still can't do that. <laughs> so I was pretty impressed with him being able to, you know, ride his bike, like doing that without, you know, killing himself doing it. Well, you know, that, that's a good thing. I mean, I got a pet turtle, so I, I'm sympathetic to turtles. Yeah. 
Uh, anyway, so, okay. we uh, yeah, sorry about that, but okay, continue. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, last week or last time we talked about Jim Jones, we got up to the point where he had bought the te- he bought the building that was going to become the People's Temple. So as we jump back into Jim's story, he was set up in Indianapolis, and he began to get involved with the local politics. Now, Monica and I were talking about this before we turned on the mics, and at this point, we're talking about mid-late 50s in the North. Um, Segregation wasn't as bad as it was in the South. It was more like, they, and I don't want to say de facto because that means what it was in the South, but it was more hidden up here. I mean, they kind of knew everyone knew their place in society. No one really challenged it. But Jim being at this point, being like the, the crusader that he was, he wanted to challenge the hierarchy of Indiana politics. Now the people's temple lived up to the promise of helping people. The church opened nursing homes with Marcy running them because she was a licensed nurse and you know, job fairs for people, you know, showing people how to fill out job applications and how to dress for an interview and how to act at an interview. So, you know, at the beginning, they were doing good work. Now, in 1956, Jones made his first visit to investigate Father Divine's peace mission in Monica's hometown of Philadelphia. I would pass the Divine Lorraine Hotel that yeah. he had built. Every single day gone to college, except by at that point it was abandoned and went down. But now they fixed it up several years ago, like stores on the first floor, and then you know, of course, the the high end apartments, the rest of it. You know, it's huge. They still have the sign up on the right on the roof, so it was pretty cool. I'm uh, I'm really looking into trying to find books on Father Divine to eventually do a show on him. But when I when I read about this, I I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit more about it. Yeah, I don't like as much. I know, God, years ago, the Philadelphia Weekly make, um, newspaper, mm-hmm. they did an article. But that okay. thing has gone so thin from when I was in college. <laughs> I was like, it used to be like, how, like how many, like probably 56 pages I picked one up. Or like back in that area, I think it was like ten pages now. Okay. Like, but yeah, but I was, yeah, I don't know that much. I was just I thought it was pretty cool before when I read about how Jones and him, yeah, right, were kind of associates. But yeah, every back and forth to college, and so I knew I was about the halfway mark when we go past the <laughs> divine Lorraine and look at him be like, man, that place would be, cause it was just still looking. I don't like, it's like structurally okay. good. Like the design, but if right. you know, graffiti and everything made it. Yeah. Look, not good. I'm just glad that they didn't tear it down. Right. Well, Jones was careful to explain that his visit to the peace mission was so he could give an authentic, unbiased and objective statement about its activities to his fellow Pentecostal ministers. Divine served as another important influence on the development of Jones's ministry, 
particularly in how he structured the People's Temple community leadership and organization and organized mission work. While publicly disavowing many of Father Divine's teachings, Jones actually began to, to promote Divine's teachings on communal living and gradually implemented many of the outreach practices he witnessed at the Peace Mission, including setting up soup, a soup kitchen and providing free groceries and clothing to people in need. In 1958, Jones made a second visit to Father Divine to learn more about his practices. Now, Jones bragged to his congregation that he would like to be the successor of Father Divine, because I guess at this point, Father Divine's health wasn't really too good, and made many comparisons between their two ministries. Jones began progressively implementing the disciplinary practices he learned from Father Divine, which increasingly took control over the lives of members over the lives of members of the people's temple in 1957 lynette moved in with her son still believing he was destined to be a great man in 1959 they adopted three korean american children named lou stephanie and suzanne and encouraged temple members to adopt orphans from war ravaged korea stephanie jones died at age five in a car accident in may of 1959 at the time, no, no white cemetery would allow the child to be interred along white people. A black mortician prepared her body and she was interred in a black cemetery. In June, 1959, Jones and his wife had their only biological child, naming him Stefan Gandhi. In 1961, they became the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child, naming him Jim Jones Jr or James Warren Jones Jr. In 1960, Indianapolis Mayor Charles Boswell appointed Jones director of the local Human Rights Commission. Jones ignored Boswell's advice to keep a low profile, however, and used the position to secure new outlets for his views on local radio and television programs. The mayor and other commissioners asked him to curtail his public actions, but he resisted. Jones was wildly cheered at a meeting of the NAACP and Urban League when he encouraged his audience to be more, more militant, capping his speech with, let my people go. I bet he was trying to sound like Yul Brenner in, um, was, was it Yul Brenner in? Um... Charlton Heston. Okay, sorry. I know Yul Brenner was yeah, in the movie. Good. Yul Brenner was Pharaoh. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Hey, I'm sorry. I was trying to remember the Ten Commandments, all right? <laughs> Although Chuck Heston was probably pretty good in it, too. Yeah, just that's like getting back to everything. Kind of like Romy for all this. Well, yeah. All the movies, yeah. And well, those, great show those, uh, too. With... Right, but those, those biblical epics were like big box office draws back then. Oh, well, yeah. Uh-huh. And you can still catch them on TV during Easter, you know? Yeah, or streaming wherever now. But right, stream, <laughs> streaming, on, streaming on WGOD, God's only streaming service. During his time as commission director, Jones helped to racially integrate churches, restaurants, the telephone company, the Indianapolis Police Department, a theater, and amusement park, and the Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital. When swastikas were painted on the homes of two black families, 
Jones walked through the neighborhood, comforting the local black community and counseling white families not to move. Jones set up sting operations to catch restaurants refusing to serve black customers and wrote to American Nazi party leaders and passed their responses to the media. In 1961, Jones suffered a collapse and was hospitalized. The hospital accidentally placed Jones in the black ward and Jones refused to be moved. He began to make the beds and empty the bedpans of black patients. Political pressures resulting from Jones's actions caused hospital officials to desegregate the wards. You know, he was probably sitting in there, you know, getting some cornrows in his hair, um, playing spades with the people in there, playing dominoes. I bet Jim Jones was one hell of a domino player. Well, you take one and push them all down. Right. Practice for later. (laughs) Sisters, let me show you how to do dominoes the right way. Well, he was in the hospital. He could have done healings in there. I mean, you know, he was a healer. Oh, yeah. How come he didn't do? Yeah. Well, he didn't have his plans. Whole bunch of in people, the- right? Hello? Whole bunch of people. He could have been healing right then. Yeah. Well, well, he, I would have been a little questioning. You're right. I would have been questioning that, too. Like, hmm. Something doesn't seem right with brother jim here you know <laughs> I, I'm, I'm telling you you know he, he he's supposed to be healing people but he, he was in the hospital and he just couldn't heal himself <laughs> maybe the lord was taking a sick day it's like, the Lord's he, like i want nothing to do with this <laughs> you know he works in mysterious ways That's extremely what mysterious <laughs> right <laughs> Very, very mysterious and on the download. <laughs> right. He was on the download that day. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was helping Oral Roberts out that day. He didn't get the memo. Oh, yeah. Jones was criticized in Indiana for his integrationist views. People's Temple became a target for white supremacists. Of course they would. Among several incidents, a swastika was placed on the temple, a stick of dynamite was left in a coal pile. And a dead cat was thrown at Jones's house after a threatening phone call. Really? A dead cat? That's where you're going to go with all this? Nevertheless, the publicity generated by his activity helped attract a larger congregation. By the end of 61, Indianapolis was far more racially integ- a racially integrated city, and Jim Jones was almost entirely responsible. In 61, Jones began to warn his congregation that he had received visions of a nuclear attack that would devastate Indianapolis because where else are the commies going to bomb, you know? They're not going to bomb Washington. They're going to bomb Indianapolis because they hate the Indy 500. Not the Indy 500. Well, the Colts weren't in Indianapolis at the time, so you got to hit, you know, you got to hit no, Formula One. Baltimore. Well, oh. well, now that's another thing with my bringing up my dad again, talking about the Colts in Baltimore and everything. But yeah, have you kissed the bricks? Have yeah. I kissed? Have I kissed the bricks? Yep. No. No, I have. No, I haven't been Jealous? to. Uh, <laughs> no, I haven't been to uh, the Indian. I haven't been where the five hundred is raced. Yeah, that's, yeah, went there. For the first crime con, my mom and I. So, 
Yeah, I, I was going to say uh, Formula One racing is different than NASCAR. Yeah. It was interesting. So, okay, okay, continue. Yeah, Sorry. That, 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 Had to do the comedy bit there. Right. <laughs> That's what it's called, comedy. Right. His wife confided to her friends that he was becoming increasingly paranoid and fearful. Like other followers of William Brand- Branham, who moved to South America during the 60s, Jones may have been influenced by his 1961 prophecy concerning the destruction of the United States in the nuclear war, which this prediction went, God, I can remember uh, people talking about when I was in school in the 80s. We're going to have a nuclear attack. Duck and cover. So Jones- was that before or after the hands across America? Oh God! It was. It was. I think it was uh, after Hands Across America. Okay. Because Hands Across America actually went through Kankakee up here. That's cool. I wasn't a I part of it. Remember. I wasn't a part of it, but I remember seeing it in the paper. Yeah, I think I was kindergarten, so I don't remember but that no, much. I don't remember where I went through or anything, but I remember. You know, I remember we had movies like The Day After. Um, the, the really good version of Red Dawn. Oh, uh, yeah, that's like... The, the one with, uh you know, the, the 80s heartthrobs. Patrick! Uh-huh. And you Ralph Macchio. Oh, somebody else that I, I've seen. No, Ralph Macchio wasn't in it. Yeah, he was. It was Pat C. Thomas Howell, Charlie Sheen, Patrick Swayze, um, Jennifer Grey, oh, like... Oh, so Le- Leah Thompson. Whatever. You're thinking of Karate Kid. The good me, me, me. Like... Oh, now she's looking it up to see to try to Out- it was outsiders. Okay, yeah, whatever. Dude. Yeah, it was the outsiders. Yeah, I'm sorry. Out. I was like a toddler prim almost. So yeah. I can't tell you how many times I watched Red <laughs> Dawn. I even fears ago I saw the first time. And then the day, but the but the Not day the day after, after tomorrow, the, the, or just the day after. It was called it was the called, day. So. It was called the day after. It was. Um, it was filmed. Parts of it was filmed in Kansas. It was dealing with like what happens after a nuclear attack, and you go through nuclear yeah. winter and everything. Yeah, I think I gra- I saw that on YouTube a little while ago too. I was looking for it to watch. I didn't feel like you know buying it or you know paying like hundred bucks for it. But I remember it was like a two night event. Yeah, I was probably I was too young for to be allowed to watch that. <laughs> I I remember it was like a two night event on ABC, and they send us home. Uh, they sent us they sent notes home with us to tell our parents about it. You know, watch it with your children and talk to them about it. So uh, my yeah, parents, my parents didn't. They let me watch it. And we're like, all right, go to bed. Uh, yeah, I was yeah, I was three, so. <laughs> So Jones began to look for a way to escape the destruction he believed was imminent. In January of 62, he read an Esquire magazine article that purported South America to be the safest place to reside to escape an impending nuclear war. Well, Jim decided to travel to South America to scout for a site to relocate the temple. Now, he stopped in Georgetown, Guyana on his way to Brazil. He held revival meetings in Guyana, which was an English-speaking British colony. Continuing to Brazil, the family 
rented a modest three-bedroom home in Belo Horizonte. Jones studied the local economy and receptiveness of racial minorities to his message, but found a, found a language to be a barrier because they speak Portuguese and he speaks English. Careful not to portray himself as a communist, he spoke of an apostolic communal lifestyle rather than Marxism. The family moved to Rio de Janeiro in mid-63, where they worked with the poor in the favelas. And they probably also caught carnival, too, because you can't go to Rio without doing carnival. Now, unable to find a location he deemed suitable for the temple, Jones became plagued by guilt for abandoning the civil rights struggle in Indiana. During the year of his absence, regular attendance at the temple declined to less than 100. Jones demanded that the temple send all of its revenue to him in South America to support his efforts, and the church went into debt to support his mission. In late 1963, Archie I. James sent word that the temple was about to collapse and threatened to resign if Jones did not soon return. Now, he kind of shuffled his feet and went back to Indiana. He arrived in December of 63 to find the people's temple bitterly divided. Financial issues and low attendance forced Jones to sell the, the temple's church building and relocate to a smaller, a smaller building nearby. Well, to raise money, he went back on the revival circuit, traveling and holding healing cam campaigns with latter rain groups, possibly to distract people's temple members from the issues facing their group. He told his Indiana congregation that the world would be engulfed by nuclear war on January 15, 1967, leading to a new socialist Eden on Earth, and the temple must move to Northern California for safety because why the hell not? During 64, Jones made multiple trips to California to find a suitable location to relocate. In July of 1965, Jones and his followers began moving to the new location in Redwood Valley, California, near the city of Ukiah. Russell Winberg, assistant pastor to the People's Temple, strongly resisted the effort, Jones's efforts to move the congregation and warned members that Jones was abandoning Christianity. This is the moment when people should have listened. Winberg took over leadership of the Indianapolis Church when Jones departed. About 140 of Jones's most loyal followers made the move to California, while the rest remained behind with Winberg. In California, Jones took a job as a history and government teacher at an adult education school in Ukiah. Jones used his position to recruit for People's Temple, teaching his students the benefits of Marxism and lecturing on religion. Jones planted loyal members of the People's Temple in classes to help him with recruitment. He recruited 50 new members to the People's Temple in the first few months. In 1967, Jones's followers coaxed another 75 members of the Indianapolis congregation to come to California. In 1968, the People's Temple's California location was admitted to the Disciples of Christ. Jones began to use the denominational connection to promote People's Temple as part of the 1.5 million member denomination. He played up famous members of the Disciples, including Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover. 
Yeah, that's not exactly. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm sure Jay Edgar attended in, in a nice dress, you know. Oh yeah, and John's like, yeah, it's like, oh, that'd be like, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Yeah. And misrepresented the nature of his position in the denomination. By 1969, Jones increased the membership in People's Temple in California to 300. Jones began using illicit drugs after moving to California, which further heightened his paranoia. He increingly used fear to control and manipulate his followers. Jones that's frequently... what a good follower does. He does drugs and he convinces everyone that he's paranoid. And, you know... The apocalyptic visions, the paranoia, the drugs, you know, it's California. It was this well, true. 60s, yeah. So, know? yeah. So, I fit uh, right in. All right, man. I'm out here in California. I think this is really groovy, man. Jones frequently warned his followers that there was an enemy seeking to destroy them. Sounds like a whole bunch of other ones, too. Can mention. Hey, there's always there's... an enemy out to destroy them. Yep. The identity of that enemy changed over time, again, from the Ku Klux Klan to Nazis to redneck vigilantes, and finally, the United States government. Hey, I'd stick with the Klan and the, the, the redneck vigilantes myself. Yeah. He frequently prophesied that fires, car accidents, and death or injury would come upon anyone unfaithful to him and his teachings. He constantly pressed his followers to be aggressive in promoting and fulfilling his beliefs. Jones established a planning commission made up of his lieutenants to direct the People's Temple's communal lifestyle. Jones, through the planning commission, began controlling all aspects of the lives of his followers. Members who joined People's Temple turned over all of their assets to the church in exchange for free room and board. Members who worked outside of the temple turned over their income to be used for the benefit of the community. Jones directed groups of his followers to work on various projects for additional income and set up an agricultural operation in Redwood Valley to grow food. Large community outreach projects were organized and temple members were bused to perform work and community service across the region. The first known cases of serious abuse in People's Temple arose in California as the Planning Commission carried out discipline against members who were not fulfilling Jones' vision or following the rules. Jones' control over the members of People's Temple extended to their sex lives and who could be married. Some members were coerced to get abortions. Jones began to require sexual favors from the wives of some members of the church and raped several male members of his congregation. Members who rebelled against Jones' control were punished with reduced food rations, harsher work schedules, public ridicule and humiliations, and sometimes with physical violence. As the temple's membership grew, Jones created an armed security group to ensure order among his followers and to guarantee his own personal safety. Um, there was a, a podcast I was listening to last year called The Promised Land, and it was about Jim Jones and and the people's temple and everything. And they actually used like audio recordings from like some of these planning commissions and his speeches and stuff. And like some of the, uh, some of the punishments I'm going to read about here coming up. I actually listened to the audio of those and they were brutal. Yeah. The one was um, 
the Jonestown Paradise Lost, I think that um documentary. Yeah. They include the the real audio with um Yeah, the, the audio like the dramatization together. Um, it's like really messed up. I listened to the uh the one that I'm gonna talk about up here, the uh the the pedophile that they that they beat. I listened to that audio while I was working at Walmart, and that was ooh, that was hard to listen to. And I mean, pedophilia should be punished no matter what. But how they did it and hearing this guy take the abuse, I couldn't do it. By the end of 69, the temple was growing rapidly. Jones's message of economic socialism and racial equality, along with the integrated nature of the temple, proved attractive, especially to students and racial minorities. By 1970, the temple opened branches in several cities, including San Fernando, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. As Jones began to shift his focus to major cities across California because of limited expansion opportunities in Ukiah. He eventually moved the temple's headquarters to San Francisco, which was a major center for radical protest movements. By 1973, People's Temple reached 2,570 members with 36,000 subscribers to its fundraising newsletter. Jones grew the temple by purposefully targeting other churches. In 1970, Jones and 150 of his followers took a trip to San Francisco's Missionary Baptist Church. Jones held a faith healing revival meeting where he impressed the crowd by claiming to heal a man of cancer. As we all know, it was chicken guts. His followers later admitted to helping him stage the healing. At the end of the event, he began attacking and condemning Baptist teachings and encouraging the members to abandon their church and join him. Well, this was successful as he recruited about 200 new members for the temple. In a less successful attempt in 71, Jones and a large number of his followers visited the tomb and shrine erected for Father Divine shortly after his death. Jones confronted Divine's wife and claimed to be the reincarnation of Father Divine. At a banquet that evening, Jones's followers seized control of the event, and Jones addressed Divine's followers, again claiming that he was Divine's successor. Well, Divine's wife rose up and accused Jones of being the devil in disguise and demanded he leave. He only managed to recruit 12 followers through the event. Jones became active in San Francisco politics and was able to gain contact with prominent local and state politicians. Thanks to their growing numbers, Jones and the People's Temple played an instrumental role in getting George Moscone's election as mayor in 75. Moscone subsequently appointed Jones as the chairman of the Housing Authority Commission. Now, Jones hosted local political figures at a San Francisco apartment for discussions. In early 76, Assemblyman Willie Brown served as master of ceremonies at a large testimonial dinner for Jones, attended by Governor Jerry Brown and Lieutenant Governor Mervyn Dimley. Okay, I know I butchered that. At the end, at that dinner, Willie Brown touted that Jones was what you should see every day when you look in the mirror and said he was a combination of MLK Jr., 
Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, and Chairman Mao. Harvey Milk spoke to the audience during political rallies held at the temple, and he wrote to Jones after one such visit. Now, y'all don't, if you guys haven't seen Milk, I'm apologizing now for the voice that I'm going to do. Reverend Jim, it may take me many a day to come back down from that high that I reached today. I found something dear today. I found a sense of being that made up for all the hours of energy placed in a fight. What I found, you wanted me to find. I shall be back, for I can never leave. I apologize now for the voice. Well, at least we have to do that, like, you know, at the next episode. (laughs) Right. You know, nothing against Harvey Milk. He was a great man. He did a lot of work for the gay community in San Francisco, but you know, I'm sorry. I'm. Th- this is part comedy, and I have to provide the wacky voices. Yeah, that's like a, the November of '78. Was t- I'd love to be able to go back to. Oh man! Like San Francisco, visit San Francisco in a time machine. That's definitely one of the. That would be probably a top five for me to go. Was that the assassination? Everything. Yeah. I'm see. I'm going to try looking tonight after the show to see if I can find biographies on Harvey Milk because I think we should do a show about him. Because I mean, he yeah. was he was important. The mayor of Castro Street. I read that, but when the movie came out, okay. Yeah, I like that. The sorry, the library okay. had that. So, Barth, that's a good one. I, I got to say, uh, Sean Penn was great in the movie Milk. Oh yeah. I'm still not, well. He he was good. I, I saw that he was he was great. Now through his connections yeah. with the politicians, Jones was able to establish contacts with key national political figures. Jones and Moscone met privately with Vice Presidential Candidate Walter Mondale on his campaign plane days before the '76 election, leading Mondale to publicly praise the temple. First. First Lady, here she is again, First Lady Rosalind Carter met with Jones on multiple occasions, corresponding with him about Cuba, and he spoke with him at the grand opening of the San Francisco headquarters, where he received a lot of applause than she did. Jones forged alliances with key columnists and other San Francisco Chronicle and other press outlets that gave Jones favorable press during his early years in California. And this is where we're going to leave Jim Jones today, folks. He's riding this high in California. He's got the politicians loving him. But as we know, there are dark clouds on the horizon. I'm I'm just watching her fumble with her. Very dark clouds. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) She joins in. Uh Well, I was watching you with your, you know, fumble, you know, get your papers organized. I've got to organize them, right? You know, it's you getting were, dark in here now, too. So, yeah, well, you're an hour uh, ahead of me, so it's not quite dark. Yeah. Uh huh. But, um, yeah, that's where we're going to cut for Jim Jones for today. Uh, next, next time we record, as I said, the dark, you know, the dark clouds that are forming on the horizon. Well, the storm is a coming, folks. It's a twister, a twister. I also saw Bill Paxton on my trip, so yeah. Well, I was doing the <laughs> so I can tie anything into 
All right, I could do well. I was doing the Wizard of Oz there, so um, and I saw Judy. Who for in her in her Judy Garland in her new oh. play? She's not because I saw her when she was in New York State, okay. and then they moved her two years ago to Hollywood Forever. Okay. Actually, right in the same right around the corner, pretty much where I am, same building. So, yay! You know, the, the funny thing is, is um, as we're talking about celebrity deaths here, um. You said that uh, you have to pay to get in to see where Bob Hope is. Yeah, because it's technically a mission. I forget. I don't know because it was this was fifteen years ago. Because he's right next to um, the San Fernando Cemetery where um, Richie Valens is. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. And yeah, you know, a few other people, but we went over to there. And then sometimes you can't get in because they're having a service too. Right. So we're just well, like, yeah, well, not paying money to go see Bob Hope. Well, I'm pretty sure that's Dolores's uh, revenge against him. His wife. Yeah, well, she's there too. Yeah. Oh. Well, because I matter, my grandparents went to see him at the Valley Forge Music Fair. Like, oh God, wow. Like probably back in the '80s. Well, obviously had it been the '80s, but I don't think it was the '70s. But and they said basically he was kind of acting like an ass back well, then too. So well, from what I from what I've heard about Bob Hope, he he was not the. Um, best person to deal with yeah um i mean he would call his joke writers up at three in the morning and have them write jokes for him and then ignore all the the fans too were kind oh, of but yeah so it's kind of it wasn't surprising basically frank sinatra's we actually he has a new stone too now but when you think like i'm sorry you know me get me into right. and at least it's at the end of the show because I was going to, well, I was another show I was going to listen to today. And it said it was like an hour and a half. It was literally in like 30 minutes into the show and they still hadn't started talking about the topic. I'm like, so I just gave up. Um, but Frank Sinatra has a small flat stone, which you would not expect for Frank right. Sinatra. And Bob Hope has a saying that looks like, like George Washington's. Like it's, um, it's shaped like the Hollywood Bowl and above ground crypt is crazy. So, I, I wanted to tell you uh, before we do our sign off. A couple weeks ago, I was watching the Golden Girls. Hell yeah! And it was the episode where Bob Hope was on it. Oh yeah, that's one. But uh huh. And um, I could tell that he was reading the cue cards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as we as I found out listening to Gilbert, like later in life, he would he just stopped memorizing his lines. He would just read the cue cards. Yes. And it wasn't like with Estelle Getty where she had an actual medical reason. Right. Which he found out later about, but it was just. But you can never tell that she was reading the cards. A couple of times, actually, you can. Was, was those the, the later? Table? Yeah. Okay. The later episodes. Okay. But the a couple later times. Yeah, like you can see her eyes like dart off to the side, kind. But well, Bob, I mean, you would, have to like know what was going on to right. be able like, oh yeah, there. It's not well, this. Bob would Bob would stand there and do the side profile, and you'd see him look at the look directly at the cards and watch his eyes, and then he'd turn away. Uh -huh. like, I was like, a fucking dead giveaway, Bob. Yeah, exactly. But uh, in the later years, in, in the later. Um, like the later NBC specials, he had an earpiece and his mm -hmm. daughter was feeding him his lines. So, I'll yes, see I was, well, 
I'll see if I can I never find really watched Hot. I can't remember so I, long ago my, too. My parents, my parents watched Bob. You know, if it was nothing on, we watched a Bob Hope special. And I, you know, I was a kid. I was more interested in the guest stars than what Bob was doing. Hey. Like, it's like watching the old Dean Martin variety show. You know, Dean's good. Don't get me wrong. Dean Martin is great. Uh-huh. But you kind of watch it for the for the guest stars and for Dean. Well, I've seen it like with the one with Jimmy. I like oh, I have that one on DVD. Yeah. Well, it's really good. And then with well, they have Rich Little, which actually when I was pregnant with James, went to see Rich Little do his Jimmy Stewart show in Atlantic City. Oh, that was cool. So yeah, and actually it was cool because I like I was yeah, it was about I think like three weeks or something before I had James. So I was like, able to tell him, I'm like, yep, like this, you know, this bump here is named after, you know, Jimmy. And I was telling that we were at the hundredth anniversary of Jimmy's birthday, you know, nice. in Indiana. So, cause he was there too. And Oh, that would have been nice. Yeah. All right, so, folks. Good times. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I know we're on. Um, God, Castbox. You need to just write this down. Yeah. I should. I should write it down because I forget every damn time we do this. Uh, Podbean, Castbox, Player FM. Um, I'll, I'll have to go look at at the face. Check the Facebook page. That's where I get it together, Scott. Come on. Hey. <laughs> Hey, I I got a sick mom at home. I'm back in class. I'm working. Just give me a break here, folks. <laughs> but no, uh, join if you want to know where we're located. Just just check the Facebook group. I update it whenever we get a new place to uh, where we're heard at. I think we're on one of the biggest pod apps outside of iTunes right now. I can't remember the damn name. This uh, is what, I usually Spotify. I'm. I got to check on Spotify, but I'll get us up on Spotify so yeah. so we can. So uh, you know, I can torture my son with my show as I'm driving across country in a few weeks. Yeah, usually I just do the the cast boxes where I listen to it. Yeah, cast box is the big one. So yeah, for, I like cast box. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks to you in promoting it, we're getting new people joining the uh, Facebook page. Oh, yay! My life is worth something. <laughs> right. Finally, a reason to live. Right. <laughs> you almost sound like um, what was it? Helen Lovejoy from The Simpsons when she's saying, "Well, someone please think about the children." Think of the children. Yeah. <laughs> I think okay. I, that got better after having James Tuck and doing right. That. Yeah, that that voice becomes mother standard once you have a child. Yeah, <laughs> that uh, that that program gets installed into the hard drive, and then you know it, it's it, it uh, continues to upgrade children, out. right? Uh huh. It, it gets an upgrade when you know each child that you have, and then grandchildren. Well, but, shops closed over here, so <laughs> right shop. My shop's closed too. Um, yeah, it's been twenty one years. Put and, it done, uh, baby. Yeah, right. <laughs> I stopped the perfection, so. <laughs> As did oh. my parents. <laughs> so for Killers, Colts, and Nut Jobs 2.0, I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Good night, Monica. This concludes our broadcast day.
Good night, and God bless.